you should have let me stop talking earlier and I, none of this would have had to happen. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 231 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam, and I'm joined by Jill. How's it going? Well, I just realized I uh, I didn't actually check levels before hitting record. I'm having a bit of a morning. Are so. we Are we good? <laughs> I think we're okay. Okay. All right. We should really, we talked about this, I think, in our literal, literally our last episode, how there's two different microphones that we use and we both speak at different levels. But the one thing we don't really tell everybody, I, humble brag, we do all of this ourselves, <laughs> the editing, the scheduling, the, obviously the recording. And so to kind of make it easier on us, we go back and forth as to who's editing which podcasts. And so because of that, we always have to change our levels. Super convenient. Yay. Um, technology. Technology. Okay. So I'm going to let you talk about what you did really quickly. But before we do that, I want to say thank you to everyone who joined our Viber reading community already. Uh, we've seen a ton of really fun, interesting, great conversations uh, just over the last day because we're recording this today after we launched it. Um, if you haven't joined that yet, you can go to our website, professionalbooknerds.com, and we have a link in there. Uh, you can also find it on social media and stuff, but just go right to our website and we'll have a link where you can join in, have a bookish conversation with us, talk to other listeners, talk to some of our coworkers. Um, one of our uh, very high up executives came up to me this morning and was like, uh, you've created a monster. It's a wonderful monster, but I think you guys have created a monster. So um, it's the guy who it's uh, Ryan. I'll omit last uh- names. Uh, yeah. He came up to me and he's like, this is a really cool thing. You've created a monster. And I was like, yeah, I know. I'm excited. <laughs> so thank you. And if you haven't joined yet, feel free to come on in. We're going to do all sorts of great stuff. We're going to potentially have some giveaways in there. We'll ask you guys if you have questions you want to ask authors. All sorts of fun stuff. So thank you for all that. And now I'll let you talk about your, your part of this episode because you did an interview that's amazing. I did. I got to interview Ruth Ware. This was one. This I think we discussed this previously as well. This was one where you asked me, "Do you want to sit in on an interview with Ruth Ware?" And normally, you know, real life humans would be like, "Yeah, of course." But I wanted to respect how much you love her, and I, I let you guys keep to yourselves. Ah, uh, Ruth Ware. We we have discussed every single one of her books on this podcast multiple times because she writes mystery and sort of suspense thriller in that, you know, genre of books. Um, And all of us here who have sat in on the, you know, when we do those genre podcasts, we love her books. So they have come up multiple times. Um, Her first one is In a Dark, Dark Wood, which came out a couple years ago. It's been optioned, I think, by Reese Witherspoon's company. We talk a little bit about that. Um, But her latest one is called The Death of Mrs. Westaway. And I I don't want to speak too much about it because I believe I mentioned it in our May books episode. So... You, I'm, I'm like 99% sure I talked about it in the May Books episode. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, Ruth Ware. I don't really need to tell you too much about um, her or the books, and I'm just gonna like, kind of let the interview um, speak for itself. She's delightful. I had a, a really great time chatting with her about about her books. Yeah, and one of our episodes last week with Jessica Knoll, who is now on the New York Times bestsellers list, she was fangirling over the fact that when she got off the phone with me, she was going to read this book. So it was cool. I got to tell her that you interviewed her, and she's like, oh, I'm going to listen to that too. So hi, Jessica, if you're listening in. Um, yeah, that Ruth Ware is on. And I feel like we have this like pantheon of like 
15 to 20 authors that just routinely, every time they have a book come out, and one of our episodes, whether it's the genre one or the monthly one, we're going to talk about it. She's we are it. slowly chipping away at getting them on the podcast, too. So We really are. We are. It's happening. It's happening. So... Good job by you. Although, actually, you know what? Not good. Well, good job by you for the interview. But we, I think this one was pitched to us. I don't think we it, it reached out. It was pitched to us. Awesome. So, uh, do you think people should know anything else before they listen to this interview? That's a weird way of asking that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Did you? I don't think you mentioned our social. Um, I didn't. If you go to professionalbooknerds.com, that's our website. But you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at probooknerds. You can also email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Or you can find all those things on our website. I'm trying to push people to our website, Jill. We also oh, we also did a video. We did do a video. We're so we're starting this series of videos called PBN Chats. So if you go to our website and click the I think the tab says galleries at the top, there's a video gallery. And the first one we did was me trying to convince Jill to read Charles Dickens novels. <laughs> Spoiler alert, I failed. Oh, see, I was going to be like, go watch the video and well, find out. No, there's still, I think there's really, you, there's a ton of value of watching it without, you know, you can know that, <laughs> you can know the end and still be enjoyed and still enjoy it. It's like Memento. No, it's like a Tarantino movie. That's it. So there you go, guys. Don't forget to join our Viber community. Sorry. Chat with us. <laughs> yeah. And our coworkers. Exactly. And okay. other book readers. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're going to stop this one because we have to record another podcast right now. So I hope you guys enjoy this special Ruth Ware edition episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill, and with me today on the podcast is Ruth Ware, New York Times bestselling author of In the Dark, Dark Wood, The Woman in Cabin 10, and The Lion Game. Her latest book, The Death of Mrs. Westaway, is out May 29th. Ruth, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Can you start by giving our listeners a brief introduction to The Death of Mrs. Westaway? Well, it begins in Brighton with my main character, Harriet, who's better known as Hal. Um, and she's kind of down on her luck. Um, she's lost her mother. Um, she's uh, really hard up. She's scraping together a living by being a tarot reader on Brighton Pier. Um, but she's had to turn to a loan shark for money to pay her bills. And he's wanting to call in his debts and things are getting slightly desperate. So one day she's sitting there leafing through a pile of bills and a letter drops into her lap from a solicitor um, telling her that she's inherited a substantial bequest um, from her grandmother. But there is just one problem, which is that um, her grandmother died more than 20 years ago. She only has one grandparent and um, she knows that this this woman is this you know this woman isn't her grandmother the bequest isn't meant for her and there's been some kind of horrible mix-up along the way um but she also knows that she has really great cold reading skills from her work as a tarot reader she's very good at sussing people out at working out what they want to hear and she knows that she can use those skills to claim the bequest so she yeah she basically sets out to commit a crime I have to ask, where do you get the ideas for your books? Because they're always so unique um, in terms of the, the settings and everything you set up. Like, where do they come from? I don't know is the honest answer. I'm not someone who has a problem finding ideas. I tend to have the reverse. I have lots of potential plots bubbling away in the back of my head. Um, and 
what I do find difficult is the fact that I don't write series novels. So every book is about reinventing the wheel. It's about finding a completely new set of characters and a completely new setting. But that's also part of the joy of it because it enables me to go to a completely different place different set of characters each time um and i'm someone who's i mean in some ways i'm quite easily bored you know i spend a year with these characters and that's wonderful and at the end i'm usually very sad to say goodbye but at the same time i'm ready normally for something different um but i think i think that the kind of the seed for mrs westaway was probably the fact that i had written three books about women who strayed into life-changing situations through no fault of their own these things basically drop into their lap and change their lives and it's not you know it's not their fault that they end up being in the wrong place at the wrong time and when I came to write The Death of Mrs. Westaway, I knew I wanted to try something a little bit different. I wanted to write a character who brings her fate upon herself. Um, and I started to think about all the books that I love, like, um, you know, the talented Mr. Ripley, um, Brad Farrer, all these books with these amazing kind of anti-heroes, really, who set out to commit crimes, to con people, to, you know, to do something very deceptive. Um, and I began to think how much fun it would be to create a character who, who does exactly that, who sets out to commit a crime and ends up in this nightmarish situation of their own making. So did you approach writing this book differently than from the other ones because of the change in sort of character motivation? I mean, in terms of the actual writing, it was the same as it always is. You know, I sat down, I did some research. I knew that I wanted my main character to have a profession that would kind of give her the skills she needed to deceive people, basically. Um, so I made her a tarot reader, but she's a cynical one. She she doesn't believe in what she's doing. She doesn't believe the cards have any power Every day, basically, she's pretending to her clients that she believes in, in this when she doesn't. So I kind of deliberately set her up to be someone who, in a very small way, makes their living through deceiving people. Um, but one thing I found was that although I, I set out to write, not exactly an anti-hero, but I knew I wanted to write someone who was very morally ambiguous, I kind of started to like her more and more as it went on. And I found myself making these excuses for her. And so I took away her family. I stripped away her friends. I basically put her in a situation as difficult as possible. And I kind of ended up giving her a moral code as well, because that, you know, that sort of self-conflict is endlessly interesting to me. Someone who is acting in a way that's contrary to their nature and watching that kind of inner struggle. Um, so I don't know if that really answers your question. No, I think it does. Is, I think it yeah. does. <laughs> I think it does. Um, you had mentioned that you sort of were looking, uh, you know, for a similar sort of anti-hero and you, and you mentioned um, the talented Mr. Ripley. So do you read a lot of other mystery and suspense books? I do and I don't. I find it really difficult to read stuff that's quite close to mine while I'm first drafting. Okay. Um, so when I'm in that kind of process of finding a character, finding a setting, working out what this story is, what I'm trying to say, I deliberately kind of veer away from reading stuff that's too close to my own genre, just because otherwise I find it kind of gets all mixed up in my head. And, and also there's that nightmare of you never want to tread on another author's toes. And if I found out that someone was 
writing something in a similar you know genre or had tackled a similar subject I would feel obliged to stop writing about that and that would be heartbreaking if I was halfway through a book that I loved and you know found that someone else had a tarot reading heroin or something I don't know what um but I I do I read when I'm not in that kind of starting a new project phase I do read a lot um partly to keep up with competition and partly (laughs) because it's just a genre that I love you know and I particularly love the all the classics like you know like Patricia Highsmith like Dorothy L Sayers Josephine Tay Daphne du Maurier Agatha Christie I it's a brilliant escape so on the subject of Agatha Christie I know you are often compared to her kind of writing in that traditional mystery style uh does that come with any sort of added pressure as a writer um i don't know it does seem to keep cropping up in reviews (laughs) um i take it as a huge compliment because i love christy and i think her plotting is second to none um i do sometimes worry that it gives people a slightly misleading impression of what i'm trying to do because i don't think actually apart from the fact that you know i love locked room mysteries and I do love that kind of country house setting and the sort of closed claustrophobic um, cast of characters that she does so well. Apart from that, I don't know that our books actually are that similar. My books are much more about the kind of the interior of the human heart. You know, Christie doesn't often write from a first person perspective in the sense of her main character isn't often at the centre of the narrative. You know, they're very often someone like Hastings who's sort of watching the protagonist from the sidelines. Um, and they're very rarely, you know, a badly behaved young woman in the way that, that mine, you know, sort of swearing, drinking, <laughs> generally. I think Agatha Christie would probably desperately disapprove of all of my characters. <laughs> um, but I think that, I hope that what, people love about Christie's books they might find some ingredients of that in mine Um, but I try not to get too intimidated by it as a comparison I don't think of myself as Christie (laughs) I hope no one else is holding me up to that very high standard no I I mean you're right though I think I can see both why people compare you to her but also why you're very different because you do you know you do focus on first person narratives and and she doesn't and um there's a lot more internal dialogue that happens related to the crime in your books than hers do yeah i think especially in terms of the death of mrs westaway because it's set in cornwall in this you know rambling country house rather sort of spooky country house that book was probably much more influenced by Daphne du Maurier actually I love both Rebecca and my cousin Rachel um, both of which were set in Cornwall at houses that were sort of thinly veiled versions of Daphne du Maurier's own house Menabilly um and I think, yeah, all of that is so... I think that's why I ended up taking the, the action to Cornwall because there's a little kind of tribute to her, really. Rebecca is one of my favorite books. I my It was my mom's favorite book. Um, I mean, it still is. And so I grew up... I read it when I was really young. Um, I think I was in, like, fifth or sixth grade and got it from a book fair. And I was just... I'd never really read anything like it before. And I just remember certain points I would come running out to the kitchen being like wait this thing just happened I can't believe it (laughs) 
it's brilliant, isn't it? And it's a book that really repays rereading at different times of your life, I think, because I also read it fairly young. I was in my teens and I don't think I'm trying not to spoil it for anybody right. who hasn't read it, but I, I don't think that I read it in the same way then as I do now. I see it as a very different, much darker book with a very different message yep. when I reread it today than I did when I was, uh, you know, a much more romantic, yes. <laughs> naive teenager. Yes, exactly. You sort of approach the characters very differently depending on where you are in your life when you read the book. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I always, I was always sort of fascinated by this idea that you have this book, um, you know, the title character, Rebecca, but the, the thing that really makes the book stand out is you have no idea what the narrator's name is. That just sort of was so mind blowing to me to read an entire book and have no idea. (laughs) What, yeah, I just I again, like that was just something I had never read before. And it really, I think, opened my eyes to what writing and especially mystery writing can be. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, she's, she's not an unreliable narrator in the sense that we tend to mean it today. But she's definitely, yes, she's a narrator who has a specific way of looking at the world. And yeah, and actually, my cousin, Rachel, um, which is narrated by um, a man who is um, variously in love with and also incredibly suspicious of his cousin Rachel of the title, who is his guardian's widow. Um, it's also a masterclass in how to mess with your reader via the means of your narrator because he's sort of his suspicions and his feelings about the central character who is, who is Rachel. Um, it's just, it's so, it's so cleverly done. It's really hard to do justice to it in a kind of, in a blurb sort of way. But yeah, I would encourage anybody to read it. It's a marvelous book. So when it comes to plotting your own books, you know, you mentioned that you sort of, you do have an idea, a plot going on. Do you have the entire thing plotted out? Do you know what happens in the end before you even start the book? Um, I usually have a pretty good idea of where it's heading. Um, I tend to, the kind of the metaphor that I use when I'm talking about writing is I sort of say that it's a bit like taking a car journey. You know where you're starting off from and you know the destination that you're going to get to and you might know a few of the important things that you hope to see along the way. But the actual process of taking the journey, what you see, what happens along the path is completely unpredictable in some cases. You know, you'll surprise yourself by finding a roadblock or you'll take a wrong turning or you'll attempt a shortcut that will go horribly wrong. You know, all of that is is up for grabs. And that that is pretty much how I write. I have outlined books before for my publisher when they've asked me to. Um, and it has pros and cons, but I think in general, I prefer to allow a book to sort of develop a bit organically. Um, I don't have any written notes. I keep it all in my head. Um, so the only the only notes I make to myself is kind of very small things that I might forget, like, you know, the dates of birth of my characters, if that's important to the plot or, you know, their eye colour or just, you know, I'll have like right. a paragraph at the bottom of the manuscript that will say things like, you know, time when she arrives in Penzance or something, if that's a, and I'll just delete them and add to them as I go. Um, but I kind of trust to everything else that my brain will hold on to the good ideas and offload the rubbish ones. <laughs> 
Um, so a few minutes ago, you um, you mentioned locked room mysteries, and I know that phrase has been used on our podcast before. Um, I know what it means, but would you mind for our listeners just sort of giving um, a little blurb about what exactly is a locked room mystery, and then for uh, a follow-up, what you find so interesting and fascinating about those and why it, it's something you like writing? Oh, good questions. Well, to anybody who doesn't know what a locked room mystery is, um, it's it's probably a slightly abused term, actually. In classical terms, it means a, a novel that takes place in a completely hermetically sealed setting. So you have a closed cast of suspects who you all know. You have a closed list of possibilities. All of the potential murderers, victims, motives, uh, you know, weapons are all within the setting that you have been introduced to. Um, and probably the best known version, I think, is Murder on the Orient Express, mm-hmm. where it's literally in a train carriage. They are marooned in the snow. There's no way for anybody to get in because they're hundreds of miles from anywhere. And there's no way anybody can get out because they're surrounded by snow. So you would see the footprints if anybody had tried to escape. So you know from the outset that whatever happened, it, all the pieces are here. They're all in front of you. You just have to assemble them in the right order. Um, it's sort of expanded slightly to come to mean any novel or any mystery novel that has um, a, a sort of closed setting. So um, The Death of Mrs. Westaway, for example, isn't a closed room mystery in the sense that, you know, everybody can leave the house if they want to. They're not physically <laughs> marooned. Um, but it, it's it's a closed room mystery in the sense that it deals with a small cast of characters um, and an unlimited number of possibilities in terms of what could happen. Oh, and the follow-up question, why do I love writing them and reading them? Why I love reading them is probably a different pleasure to why I love writing them. So I love reading them because they are associated with particularly ingenious and clever plotting. And because as a reader, um, you know that the key to the mystery is in front of you. You know, it's, they tend to be those books where you get to the end and either you've, you're one step ahead of the author or most satisfyingly, the author is one step ahead of you and everything falls into place. And you get that really satisfying click where you think, oh, of course, I should have figured it out. <laughs> How could I have been so stupid? Um why I love writing them is maybe slightly different. I think primarily it's because I love kind of getting really deeply into people's characters and having a small cast of characters really allows you to do that because you get to spend a significant chunk of time with each one. You know, I don't write series, so I don't have the luxury of coming back to characters in book after book and developing them a little bit more. My only chance to spend time with these people and to do justice to them is the book that I'm currently working on. So by keeping the cast relatively small, I really get a chance to kind of, you know, show these characters quirks and delve into them a little bit. Um, but also from the point of view of writing, what is most enjoyable, I think, is conflict. Mm-hmm. And it's fun to read as well. You know, you want characters to be uncomfortable. You want them to be arguing. You want them to be rubbing up against each other so the sparks fly a little bit. 
And creating a claustrophobic closed situation is a very easy way of doing that because you're, you know, in my first novel, in a dot, dot, wood, they're literally, there's six very disparate characters who've been shut in a house together and they can't get away because they're at a hen party. <laughs> so it would be incredibly rude for any of them to leave. And none of them really want to be there. And they've all got different bones to pick with each other and different things that are making them feel uncomfortable. And it was incredibly fun to sort of, you know, keep making them all slightly more on edge and slightly more uncomfortable and really kind of exactly that creating friction between them um so yes that's why I enjoy writing them possibly a little bit sadistic on my part <laughs> it's okay I have to ask when you read them um you know do you try to stay ahead of the author or do you like to be surprised at the end um I yeah I mean I I can't help, but I'm a mystery writer, so I spend, you know, my whole time trying to pick up clues and figuring things out. Um, I have to say I usually do get the twist. Mm. Um, I think it's maybe because I do it for a living, so I'm very good at noticing what authors are doing and how they're trying to direct your attention and what they're not saying. Um And also probably because I spend a lot of time on social media and Twitter with other writers and, and book bloggers and reviewers and it's amazing how much you pick up from book chat even when people are being very careful not to spoiler um <laughs> you know it, publishers marketing now is very often predicated on the fact that there is a huge twist and they sometimes even tell you where it's coming in the book you know i've seen things saying oh my goodness you know I've just got to page 84 this is my face kind of thing and if you're reading it it does really change your experience because you're getting closer and closer to page 84 thinking well nearly there what's going to happen um but I actually mostly don't mind if I figure out the solution ahead of time I watched um Big Little Lies recently the mm -hmm. TV series um, which I adored and I had it pegged for about episode two I knew exactly what I mean I wasn't sure if I was right of course but I was as it turned out I knew exactly what had happened I knew who had done it I I I pretty much guessed it all but I didn't care at all because I I loved the characters I cared about them I wanted them to be okay it didn't spoil my enjoyment in fact I got a little frisson of satisfaction when it all worked out and I was like yes <laughs> I figured it out I am totally guilty of that Twitter thing now that you mentioned that. And I, I mean, but you're right, though. I, I don't really, I hadn't considered how someone's still reading the book. If they know something is coming like that, that would change your experience. So I'm going to have to be very careful of that from now on. I mean, I think there's arguments on both sides because... Uh, in some ways so there was this really interesting experiment which was reported in the media recently where they gave two sets of people um short stories and one set read the short story completely blind and the other set was given appraises of it including the ending detailing any twists and then afterwards they were asked to rate how much they enjoyed the story and the group who had all the spoilers enjoyed the stories more they rated their enjoyment more and I think sometimes it's because you can see how cleverly something's been put together if you understand what the author's doing so in a way maybe knowing there's a twist increases our enjoyment and our anticipation I don't know I don't know what the answer is but yeah, no, yeah. I know. <laughs> no I mean I, it definitely you know it, it happens here at the office where we are given um, often advanced copies and 
all of us are, um, for the most part, most all of us are huge suspense and thriller fans. And so we often pass around copies of the same book. And, and it's always kind of, um, when it's presented to you as a reader, you know, my coworkers always very excited and they, and you, and I'm aware that there's a twist in whatever they're handing me. And I think it does ramp up the, uh, enjoyment because I, I'm kind of looking for it. I'm I, like, it keeps me on edge knowing yeah. that there's something coming. It's like, you know, kind there, of, there's a jump or right. A, yeah, and so, but definitely. I'm not, but I'm not necessarily sure where it's going to come, but I'm aware it exists. And so it definitely adds a different level. Um, that's interesting. I'm going to have to go look for that study. I'm really curious now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you did mention In a Dark, Dark Wood, which is, is the big one that you were um, first known for. Is there any update on the film version? Not that I know of. Um, I think, you know, the wheels are still rolling. It's still under option. But I am so far away from L.A. and I don't really understand the movie. <laughs> so I get these periodic updates, but they don't mean very much to me. Right. Um, but, yeah, I'm just crossing my fingers that something, something marvelous emerges. <laughs> um, when I um, Before doing this interview, I actually asked my coworkers who are fans of yours if they had any questions for you. And somebody did want to know if you since in a dark dark wood if you are still ever invited to um hen or bachelorette parties <laughs> um do you know what i'm thinking about it now and i actually haven't been <laughs> but to be fair that is probably because most of my friends are either partnered up right are you know they are happily in a relationship no plans to get married there's i'm not quite at the right stage of life for it at the moment <laughs> there was a time in my 20s when it just seemed like every weekend <laughs> was a hen party mm. um but yeah i'm probably i'm probably about 10 years too old for the kind of the peak hen party season now but now i'm gonna start taking it slightly personally yeah. <laughs> uh, that book always was interesting to me just because of the setting and this big glass house did I mean, was that based on a real house? No, yeah. it's sort of loosely based on, I don't know if it exists in America, but there's a program in the UK called Grand Designs, which is a TV series that focuses on people building their own houses. And they're usually these very ambitious, very modernist kind of structures, usually in outstandingly beautiful areas. So it's always a nightmare in terms of planning commission. And, you know, they're not allowed to cut down the trees and they get these incredibly expensive windows from Germany that don't arrive on time. So it's always, you know, high drama and lots of problems. Um, And I love the program. Um, so the house is, you know, it's not based on any one of those, but just the kind of the idea of a sort of iconic glass house in the middle of nowhere is definitely drawn from watching too many episodes. <laughs> but it's really interesting because when I started writing that book, when I fir- wrote the first few chapters, the house was really different. It was very old and it was kind of tumble down and quite small. It was much more like the croft that flows on in the book knocks down in order to make way for her mm. giant house. Um, and it was only, I got about a third of the way in and I started to realize that one of the themes of the book was exposure right. and having your sort of defenses stripped away and the self that you keep inside and the different versions of that, that you show to other people being sort of exposed. Um, and I started to think how much more interesting if the house reflected 
those themes and those kind of those concerns and anxieties and so I completely sort of turned it around and changed it into this enormous glass mansion with no curtains so that there's literally nowhere to hide and and everybody feels like they're sort of in a stage set all of the time Mm -hmm. so at the end of all of our episodes we do something we call the nerd nine which are nine sort of light-hearted questions don't put too much thought into these or (laughs) okay okay (laughs) i feel a bit scared now (laughs) uh so what was the last book you finished reading oh uh I've got about three on the go at the moment. The trouble is they tend to go out of my head. Oh, I know. It was um, Bitter Orange by Claire Fuller, who wrote Our Endless Numbered Days. Um, it's not out yet, uh, but I think it's out this summer. So, okay. And it's really good. What book made you fall in love with reading? Hmm. I don't know. I think the first book that I can remember reading to myself was an Enid Blyton and I our teacher was reading it aloud to us it was one of the famous five adventures um and she got to a real cliffhanger and I came up to her at the end of the class and said I have to know what happens please tell me what happens and she said you can have the copy if you bring it back to school tomorrow and I finished it that night and I think it was the first time I'd ever read a story that kind of completely gripped me it was the first grown-up book that I could remember reading so uh, I'm not sure it's very edifying no, that's... but it was probably that was probably it <laughs> do you have a favorite place when you read Oh, bed or the bath. I love both of those. Yeah, somewhere warm and cozy. <laughs> what is one place you would like to travel to that you haven't been to yet? I'd love to go to Sri Lanka. I've always wanted to and people keep telling me how amazing it is. Um, so I hope I might be able to go in the next couple of years. My travel's really booked up at the moment, yeah. but um, next time I've got a bit of spare time, that's where I'm heading. Do you have a favourite holiday you like to celebrate? So holiday in the American sense. Oh, like, uh, uh, oh, Christmas is definitely, I'm a Christmasaholic and, um, yeah, the whole house stops for that. Everything gets thrown upside down. <laughs> Cats or dogs? Cats. Excellent answer. I, I, I agree. Uh, <laughs> all, are, all right thinking people do. <laughs> uh, are you a coffee or tea drinker? Coffee. A hundred percent. It's the only autobiographical element of In a Dark, Dark Wood is I am exactly as much of a coffeeaholic as Nora. <laughs> uh, your favourite food? Oh, I don't know. This is difficult. I don't think I've got one. I'm extremely greedy, so <laughs> I will eat almost anything. Um, the last really delicious thing I had was a, a kind of tuna sashimi sort of serviche type thing. Um, which was amazing. So I'm going to say that just because that's the last really good thing I remember eating. Okay. And if you could have dinner with one person dead or alive, who would it be? Wow. Um, maybe Agatha Christie. And I would, I would, I wouldn't be rude enough to ask her about her disappearance, <laughs> but I, I would, you would I would wonder. hint at it yeah. and, and hope that she volunteered the information. <laughs> That's a really good answer. That's a really good answer, actually. Um, <laughs> finally, what do you hope readers take away from reading the death of Mrs. Westaway? I don't think it's my role to tell people what to find in my books. I just hope they find something interesting and that they have a good time while they read it. That's enough. No, that's wonderful. Ruth, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. 
Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. My name's Adam Sokol, and I'm the host of the Passions and Prologues podcast. Every week, best-selling authors like Jenny Jackson, Rebecca Mackay, Lisa Scottolini, or Brad Meltzer come on to my show to talk about, yes, their new books, but more importantly, the things that they're crazy passionate about. We've talked about the Muppets, powerlifting, traveling, gardening, home improvement, and so much more. We dig into why these things are their passions, how they inspire their writing, and where they came to fall in love with these random assorted things. Be sure to subscribe to the Passions and Prologues podcast wherever you get your podcasts and check out evergreenpodcast.com to learn more.